back in the mid-late 90s, Isla and I sensed that we were being called by God to join this mission team that was going to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and plant a church. And I'll tell you this, I think I can speak for all Church of Christ missionaries. Different groups do it differently, but in Church of Christ, you are a missionary, you are raising your own salary, all right? And most missionaries don't enjoy doing that. So you're raising your funds that you're going to need to work with, your salary that you're going to need to work with. And so you're, you're just having to get used to asking people and actually believing that you're inviting them to join in God's work, all right? And there were highs and lows along the journey, but God taught us a lot along the way. One experience had an opportunity to go preach at a church in West Texas. Small town church, small church, beautiful Christian brothers and sisters. They, I didn't know very many people there. I just knew Isla's aunt and uncle that were out there. But I got to go out and preach out there on a Sunday night because that's when missionaries preach on Sunday nights. All right. So I was there on a Sunday night. And I shared, you know, photographs of beautiful Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I talked about the need there. I talked about the calling that Isla and I had. And I was told that I could ask for funds and receive those at the end of the service. So I asked for funds. I told people that they could come talk to me if they want to help or whatever after church. And so finished my sermon, poured my soul out and all that. Went back to the back and, and, and uh, was going to meet people, talk with people, but sometimes when you're asking for funds, people kind of walk on the other side of the room, so I'm kind of like back there alone. Anyway, um, the result of that evening was that, that I was given 2,500 um, pennies, all right? So $25, all right? I got $25 for that drive out into West Texas, and I got to tell you, um, I, I mean, there are a variety of reasons that may have happened. One is that they didn't know me. Who's the strange guy that's here asking for money? One is maybe the sermon was not as good as I thought it was. I don't know. Um, but I remember that long drive back to Norman, Oklahoma, where we were living at the time, and you just have these questions. Um, you know, if this is God's will, <laughs> that we move our young family to another hemisphere, another continent, um, shouldn't God be providing? So is this the will of God? God, are you really wanting us to leave? Because I talked to this church. I got $25. No, not, not quite what I expected. But the ups and downs. God revealed something beautiful to me in a surprising way. Because up to this point, here's how I'd been thinking, a very worldly, I'll confess, way of thinking. I thought, you're raising funds. You go talk to large groups of people, churches, or you go talk to sugar daddies and sugar mamas who have deep pockets. All right, that's how I thought. God seemed to have a different idea about that. One of the places I got to preach was at our hometown, Neosho, Missouri, Rockadine Road Church Christ there. And one of the people sitting on the pew was a woman named Marjorie Lillard. Let me tell you about Marjorie. Marjorie um, the first thing I remembered about, uh, about Marjorie and knowing Marjorie was where she lived. A very, very humble existence that Marjorie had. Fixed income. She was a widow, uh, very old. And she lived in this trailer on this tiny parcel of land in the middle of town. And it was not like a double wide. It was not even a single wide. It was something you might pull behind an SUV back in the 1960s. Because it was kind of rusty and kind of old looking, although she kept her lawn and she kept her trailer in perfect, um, beautiful order and really took care of her stuff there. That's where she lived. I also remember about, and so she didn't have a car or anything. Brothers and sisters in Christ drove her to church services so she could worship. I also remember about uh, Margie, and this is weird, but it's just what I remember. It's one of those memories. I remember that she had this, 
strange odor of vinegar all the time. And some might translate that as old lady smell. So those were the two things I remembered about Marjorie. Little bitty house, no money, and smells a little bit weird, okay? So I preach in the Osho. We go back and we collect some funds there. Praise God for that. We go back to Norman. And a couple of weeks later, later, I get a letter in the mail from Margie. And Margie, that's what they called her, Marjorie, but everybody called her Margie. Margie uh, sent me a check for $200. And Margie sent me a note saying, I'm bringing your cause. I'm bringing your mission work before the Father. I apologize that I can't do more than this. And I remember thinking, I had this existential moment there. I had this decision point. I'm like, I can't take this. I can't accept this money. She doesn't have extra money. I mean, she did not fit in with my fundraising strategy. She is not someone I ever would have sat across over a cup of coffee and said, can you help us financially with our work? And so I called our mom. I called our mom, Allison, and I said, Mom, you know Margie. You're friends with Margie. You've known her for a long time. Here's the deal. She just wrote me a $200 check. Should I tear this up? Should I avoid this? And Mom said, don't you dare. She believes in what you guys are doing. And she wants to be a part of it. So, we use that money for our work. And I still, it's been a long time, but I still think about her. And for years after that, when we were in Brazil and we were working, we were planting the church. I thought about her. I thought about the, pl- the pink flamingos on her front yard. I thought about the little green steps leading up to her trailer. I just thought, man, if Margie Lillard is praying for us, good things are going to happen. But that's how God works. He works not in the ways we expect. And that's what we've been seeing in this Underdogs series. He doesn't work in ways we expect. He doesn't work with people that we would expect him to use. The most talented, the most wealthy, the most strong, the most intelligent. He uses regular folks and does surprising things. I wonder if Elijah and his relationship with a widow at Zarephath was a little bit like my relationship with Margie Lillard. You see, at that time... In, in, the, in, in Israel's history, there was a great famine, a great drought. It didn't rain there for a long time. God was disciplining his people. He was even disciplining neighboring nations who chose to bow their knees to Baal. Strangely enough, the rain god, the fertility god, chose to worship Baal instead of worshiping the true living God. And so God was calling them back by sending this famine, by sending this drought upon the land. And there was this woman in Zarephath, which is not in Israel. It is a foreign city. In fact, it is in the middle of Phoenicia, which is where Jezebel was from. It is the world center of Baal worship in that time period. And so there's this widow lady, and she is slowly starving to death with her boy. Her husband has passed away. And she's watching herself wither away as there's simply not enough calories in her diet to sustain life. And more agonizing is watching her son wither away. Young boy. 
and other people are in the same boat that she's in. So it's not a time where lots of people are going to say, hey, that widow lady probably has some needs. Let's help her out. They're thinking about their own survival. Now, Elijah, on the other hand, who's in another part of the world at this point, south of her, he is being taken care of by God. You may remember this from your flannel graph in elementary school. These ravens are bringing him food deliveries. So he has meat to eat, he has food to eat, he has water to eat, or to drink rather, but the, the brook slowly dries up. And God says, I now have another plan for you, another plan to provide for you, and it is going to be through this widow in the town of Zarephath in Phoenicia. So here it goes, 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 to 11. The word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon, stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. There he came to the town gate. A widow was gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And when she was going to get it, he called, And please bring me a piece of bread. Let's put this in perspective, okay? <laughs> God tells Elijah, The raven deliveries are over. But I have another way I'm going to provide for you. What I want you to do is to go to the poorest, most destitute person in the region and ask her for a handout. You with me on this? I mean, it's like you driving in downtown Dallas, you've got a case of the hungries, you see a homeless guy under a bridge, you stop not to get out your wallet, give him a few bucks, but you stop to say, hey, could you give me some of that? Food that you've got in that can? Going to the poorest person to ask for a handout. That was God's plan for Elijah, right? Now, 1 Kings 17, 12. Her response, as surely as the Lord your God lives, realize she is not a Yahweh worshiper at this point. So it's your God, Elijah. As surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home, make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. I've been rationing food for months. And it's come to this. The last portion of oil, the last portion of flour, this will be our last meal. And that's what Elijah has asked her to take and prepare a meal for him. First Kings chapter 17, verse 15 to 16. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. And this is the miracle. So there was food every day for Elijah and the woman and her family. The jar of flour was not used up. And the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord to Elijah. No matter how many cakes she baked, no matter how much bread she baked, there was still flour, there was still oil. You turn the jug upside down, it never runs out. Until rain finally came to the land. Until finally the crops were growing, the garden was growing. She had plenty to eat. And in this woman's heart, in this underdog's heart, is a willingness, willingness to risk everything in trusting this God. 
and giving the little bit that she had to this Lord. And also there is this sacrificial generosity that she is willing to offer to a hungry stranger asking her for a handout. And it's important to, it's really important in this story to pay attention to the rhythm of the story, the pulse of the story, because the cool miracle, right? The jug and the jar that never run out offers it to God. God's provision, God's power is experienced in her life in a miraculous, in an incredible way. When she chooses to obey, she takes the first step. God takes the next thousand steps, but her obedience releases his provision in her life. Now, obedient generosity, sacrificial generosity is hard for us. A while back at the DFW airport, man was traveling, needed to be at his gate in about 45 minutes, figured he could grab a snack at the food court. So he went, got himself some fries from McDonald's, got himself a Coke, looking for a place to sit down. But you know how it is there. It gets very crowded sometimes. There was not an open table. So he ended up having to sit down across from a guy he didn't know who just happened to have an empty seat. Took his coat off, put it on the back of the chair, put his suitcase on the floor, put his fries there, started checking his email and munching on his fries and sipping his Coke. When the strangest thing happened, the other guy, and they had not exchanged a word at this point, the other guy reaches out to the middle of the table, puts his hand in that box of fries, pulls a few out, and eats them. <laughs> What's going on here? How rude, how impolite. It's flu season. What's he doing? <laughs> so this guy, I'm not going to make an awkward situation even more awkward, he figures. So he just scoots that box of fries further onto his side of the table, doesn't make any eye contact with the guy, and continues to eat his fries and drink his Coke. When an even stranger thing happened. The other guy stretches all the way across the table, grabs a few more fries, and eats them. He's thinking, this is wrong. This fry thief is committing a criminal act against my snack. And just about the time he's ready to wag his finger and tell this guy off, the guy gets up, gathers his things, winks at him, says, have a good one, and walks away. Oh, he is seething, but he finishes his snack, finishes his fries. It's time to go to his gate. So he puts on his coat. He reaches down for his suitcase. And there on top of his suitcase is a box of fries. <laughs> the other guy wasn't eating his fries. The other guy was sharing his fries. <laughs> and there is a moral to the story. All the french fries belong to God. God made the fries. God owns the fries. God gives you some of his fries. But God expects you to take the little or the much that you have and to be generous with it and to honor him. We talked about this last week. It's about his glory. That's why you exist. And he is glorified when his people are generous with, the, with those around them and with the kingdom 
of God. Jesus in Luke chapter 4 actually talks about the woman at Zarephath briefly. How amazing and how strange and surprising it is. The people God chooses to bless and the people God chooses to work through. Paul later on uses a similar story. At least a, a story about another group of people who were sacrificially generous. In, in Greece, there were the southern Grecians who had a little more money. Times were a little better. Northern Greece, Macedonian region, extremely poor. Going through extremely hard times. And he tells the Corinthian church about these brothers and sisters in Christ in Macedonia and how generous they were in spite of their situation or perhaps even because of their situation. So he tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 2, Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Joy and poverty combining into generosity. And so he tells the Corinthians later on, all the fries come from God. Well, essentially. In chapter 9, verses 10 to 11, he says to the Corinthian church, now, the most important phrase in this verse, he who supplies. Now, he who supplies. The owner of the fries. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that... You can buy that third car, that vacation home. Well, God lets us enjoy what he gives us, but that's not the so that. Okay? So that God has blessed you so that you can be what? Generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. It's all about his, his glory. Your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God, taking the little that you have, trusting God with it. That is called walking by faith. And that is the attitude that releases God's provision in your life. Let's translate that into some, some different places. Let's go beyond French fries, okay? How about marriage? How about the marriage relationship? If your marriage is going through a famine, a drought of kindness, of patience, a famine of hope. The widow's story invites you to take the little bit that's still there, stuck to the bottom of the jar, the little bit of kindness, the little glimmer of hope, to take that, offer it to God, and believe that he can multiply that and can work in your marriage. Believe that it is not your last meal together. Believe that it is not your final day together. Believe that it is not the hour to lawyer up. But believe that through God's power, you can offer what little you have, and God will respond. 
or maybe it's in your spiritual life. I mean, you're running on empty. You just don't have much faith anymore. Maybe that's where you're at. And so the invitation is to take that little bit of faith. Jesus might call it a mustard seed. Take that little bit of faith and exercise it. Devote yourself to spending time with the Father every day when you feel like it, and especially when you don't feel like it. And take that faith and exercise it into the dough of your life and watch how it will expand and grow. Your finances, you know, you guys know where I'm at on this. Not everybody is, but I believe that tithing is a spiritual principle in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and it's about generosity. It's about in your financial area. It's about taking that, believing that God will take care of you, and being generous with those who have less, tithing to the church, giving out of the abundance, and making wise financial choices according to His Word, and that God will take care of you. God will cause rain to fall on the parched soil of your soul. And just because things aren't growing right now doesn't mean they're never going to grow again. Here's kind of the, here's kind of the point today. If you're going to remember anything, take this home. Whatever you have, little or much, whatever you have is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift to God. Whatever you have, little or much, is God's gift to you. What you do with that is God's gift, is your gift rather to God. Your words, your attitudes, your dreams, your money, your relationships. You leverage all of that 24-7 to bring glory to God. The widow at Zarephath, she understood this. And she stuns us with the way she gives everything. And the way God uses her poverty and her weakness to bring glory to his name. And he'll do that for us if we allow him. This is her story, the widow at Zarephath. And I think this story points out to us that faith or fear are most clearly revealed at moments like this. Whether you are a person of faith or a person who lives by fear will be revealed at moments when you are running out. When your marriage is running out of patience. Faith or fear will be revealed. When her cupboard was running out of food, faith or fear was being revealed. When Margie was running out of money, her faithfulness was revealed. When the going gets tough, when you are running out, faith or fear will be revealed. Because the disciple believes that when they are running out, Jesus is running in. You with me? When you're running out, when you feel empty, Jesus is running in. He's not running away from you. And so that's about walking in obedience, trusting God. In the widow's life, God's glory shined brightest at that moment 
when she was agonizing the most. And we're not just talking about the starvation now, because later on in the story, an amazingly sad thing happens, and I will not attempt to explain it. I don't know the mind of God enough to, to be proud enough to try to explain it. But what I can tell you is, even after God was providing over a period of time, her son became sick. And some of you have seen this happen in the lives of somebody that you love. He wasn't getting better. He was sick. And as much as she tried to see some improvement, she didn't see it. He got worse and worse day after day, week after week. His body got sicker and sicker until he perished. She questioned God as I'm sure anyone would. I don't understand that totally. But God then entered and raised her son back to life. Resurrected her son. What I believe is there is something for us in that. And that is, even when we believe that something is dead, a career is dead, a dream is dead, a relationship, a friendship is dead. Even when we believe that, even when all of the signs are that there is no life there, God can do something amazing. But hey, maybe there isn't a God. I mean, this, this would be a really weird story if you don't believe in God, because here you've got some Hebrew writer, some Jewish writer that chooses to record this detailed story about this foreigner, this non-Israelite, this widow who lives up in Phoenicia, up near between Sidon and Tyre, and she is kind of the hero of the story, and her faith is remarkable, and you believe that 3,000 years ago, some Hebrew person concocted this story? I mean, certainly they would have made some good Jewish person the hero of the story, but this is how God works, right? But maybe there's, maybe there's not a God in your mind. Maybe you're questioning that, and I think questions are a wonderful thing because I believe that questions can take you not only away from God, but they can take you back to God. Now, you guys know... I went off to OU after graduating from Oklahoma Christian, and I went and got my PhD in philosophy because I've always been a person more intrigued by the why questions than the how questions, right? The how questions are interesting. Biologists, physicists, um, astronomers, uh, chemists, they're very interested in how, how things work. How does cellular memory work? How does slow evolutionary change happen over time? Those are, how, does, how do antibodies fight disease in the body? Those are, those are interesting questions. But I have always been fascinated by the why questions. The how people go into the hard sciences. The why people go into theology or philosophy or literature, okay? And I've always been fascinated by the why questions. And, and I think some of those why questions are the ones that lead us back to God. They're questions that you will not answer looking through a microscope. They're questions that you will not answer looking through a telescope. They're questions that you'll answer by looking to God. And the why questions are valid. And the why questions are important. Like, why are you here? Why are you living, loving, and laughing 
on this rock floating around this sun in this solar system when everything else, by all appearances, as much as we search for some scrap of life out there, woo, we found ice somewhere. Oh, that's great. I love it. Hey, but why are you here? Why is this world so apparently designed, or maybe you're not there yet, but it, but it is the perfect place for life to be sustained. I agree with Werner von Braun, the former director of NASA, who said one time, the creation must have a maker. He just couldn't conceive of how it, it couldn't. That's a why question. Why is, there, why is there something rather than nothing? Why isn't the universe just empty? But beyond the physical world, how about the inner world? Your inner world. Why, why do you and I have this idea? More Okay, not an idea. Conviction. That there's right and there's wrong. Why do we believe that cheating is wrong? Murder is wrong. Child abuse is wrong. You're not going to find the answers for that question in a Petri dish. Why is there some moral law written on our hearts? That's the kind of question that sends you back to God. That sends you back to the Bible. It doesn't invalidate the how questions. It doesn't say the work of the scientist has no value. Obviously it does. But it tells you there's more than just the physical dimension to life. You're more than a collection of atoms and particles. You have a soul. You have a spiritual dimension. Why have people all over this globe that we live on through all ages believed in a spiritual world? I know there are some who don't. But the vast majority 2,000 years ago and today believe there is. They sense that there is a spiritual world. Why? The why questions. You see, you're not an accident. You're here on purpose. God made you. God loves you. God has a purpose for your life. One day, you and I, after our physical death, we will meet God face to face. And one day, we will be held accountable for what we did with Jesus Christ. And those who live by faith will spend eternity with God. And those who rejected Jesus won't. Because there is no life separate from God. One time, I love this story. Guy lost his dog. Did what most dog owners do who actually love their dog. Some of us don't, but loved his dog. So went around the neighborhood putting up signs, you know, on, on telephone poles and on fences and stuff about his dog. So here's how it went. Um, you may have heard this before. He, he wrote on his poster, he's got only three legs. He's blind in the left eye. He's missing a right ear. His tail has been broken off. He was neutered accidentally by a fence. Yikes. He's almost deaf, and he answers by the name Lucky. (laughs) 
And you might think that dog's not very lucky. But that dog is really, really lucky or blessed rather to have a master who cares so much about him that he is willing to go out and search the neighborhood to find that dog and to bring that dog home. You know, you know where I'm going with that. I mean, your life may be a mess in one or more areas this morning, a disaster. But God is searching for you. And God just wants to bring you home. You aren't here by luck. You aren't here by chance. You're here by the grace and power of a loving God. However, the how questions are answered. There's a why for your existence. You're here because God loves you.